Welcome to Rails with Jason. If you enjoyed today's episode and want more Rails tips and advice, head over to codewithjason.com, where I keep all my Rails articles and videos. Now on to the episode. Hey, today I'm here with Cameron Dutro, software engineer for Quip. Cameron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jason. Cameron, today you and I are going to be kind of continuing the theme that I've had recently on the show about Rails deployment options and all that kind of stuff. But before we dive into that, do you want to give us a little intro of yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm Cameron Dutro. I um, actually am just one week into a new job at Quip. Uh, and before that, I worked for Lumos Labs and was doing um, almost entirely Rails and, and Ruby development over there. Um, and that's uh, about a 10-year career in the, the Ruby world and the Rails world. And, um, you know, I've loved every minute of it. And I'm, I'm really grateful to have been invited onto the podcast slash invited myself <laughs> onto the podcast yeah. um, to talk about Rails and, and uh, yeah, all that stuff. Awesome. And so is your job equipped? Do they use Rails there? You know what? They don't actually. It's all Python and JavaScript over there. So I'm starting so kind you're of a, a new trader. chapter. <laughs> yes, I'm a trader. I hate to use, I mean, I really didn't want to jump ship, but I was also looking for something like totally different. Because after 10 years of one thing, you sort of kind of want to branch out a little bit. So yeah. um, that, that was the main motivation. But I still love Rails, still love Ruby, uh, still my favorite language. And yeah. framework. So you, you love it, just not enough to actually use it anymore. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, but okay, I sure. think there's a lot of value in that. Like, it's good to get some different perspectives from, from some different languages. Because if you only ever know one thing, then you like can't, you're only seeing the thing from like one angle and you like don't really, you can't appreciate it fully, I think. I think that's, that's very true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, for what it's worth, I forgive you. And I guess we can, we can move on from that. Um, so rails deployment, the thing, the, the, okay. So we're going to talk about your library that you have, which I am very unfamiliar with, but we'll of course be getting more familiar with it throughout the course of this conversation. I understand it has something to do with rails and Kubernetes, but rather than me trying to explain it, Maybe I should just turn it over to you and, and you can explain what this tool is. Okay, sure. Yeah, so um, a little bit of background maybe first on um, sort of the problem that, I was, that I'm trying to solve um, with, with this, this project. Um, so the project is called Kubi. It's a K-U-B-Y, so it's like a mashup of Ruby and Kubernetes. Um, and so the the main motivation for this was actually a podcast that I listened to last year around this time, uh, Ruby Rogues episode number four hundred three. It's called Rails Needs Active Deployment, and yeah. um, the, the guest they had on was Stefan Wintermeyer, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name, but he uh, basically just he, he talked to the Rogues about just how there isn't a really good deployment story for Rails apps. 
And what I mean by that is, let's say that you're working on a Rails app, and, and you know, a lot of people come into the Rails community having never coded before, let alone you know, used a framework before to do that. Um, and lots of, of, of parts of Rails are really easy for beginners to use. And that, I think that's not on, on accident, right? Like Rails is a really good platform for new devs and for new web devs, especially. But the thing is, like, you know, so you might be able to, you know, set up, you go through a bootcamp maybe, or you go through a meetup, or you go to a meetup and they talk about how to get yourself set up with, with Rails development. And it's, you know, you install the database, MySQL, Postgres, whatever, and you're talking to that database in no time at all. I mean, it's just like DHH's famous, you know, um, video where he made the blog post and he kept saying, oops, you know, like things just kind of work as you expect them to work. There's a place for all your files. Every, every, every file has its own exact place it needs to go. Um, you know, running the app, you can see it running on your local machine. You can hit URLs. You can, um, you know, route requests easily using that sort of route DSL you have in your routes file. I mean, everything is very streamlined. I mean, even to the point where, you know, adding JavaScript packages and, and all that has gotten arguably easier with Webpacker and was pretty good before with the asset pipeline. So, like, all this stuff is really easy for Rails devs, I think, um, to pick up. And, and sure, there's a learning curve, but it's not nearly as high as other frameworks, at least in my opinion. But the problem is that once you've finished working on your app and it's working and it's great and you love it, you're like, okay, this thing works on my local machine. It's time to put it online. And that's kind of where all the hand-holding just stops. You know, nobody – and this is something that, that Stefan said in that Ruby Rogues podcast that – you know, when Rails apps, when it's time to deploy them, you know, you have a couple options, but there's not really anything that the community has coalesced around um, as the deployment solution. And like, th- that's very unlike Rails. You know, everything else is the, like Active Record is the database ORM layer for Rails. Yeah. And, you know, Sidekick th- these days, and this is maybe a little incendiary, but Sidekick is the choice that most Rails devs use for for queuing. So even stuff that's outside Rails itself, there's like this coalescing around these solutions. But for deployment, it just runs the gamut, right? Like you could do, um, I think I've heard you, Jason, before on this podcast, talk about using Ansible on your current project. And that's certainly absolutely valid uh, to use Ansible for for your deployments. Um, There are myriad hosted solutions like Cloud66 and Elastic Beanstalk and, and all these other solutions um, that that sort of require you know different levels of expertise to use, but the thing is, there's still nothing in the Rails community that says this is what we use as Rails developers. Um, and I would say that you know even guides, if you were to search for this, like how do I deploy my Rails app? If you just type that into Google, you'd probably get a thousand different responses, you know, and, and a thousand different blog posts written at all at different times when technologies were different. Um, so you knew you might make it halfway through one of these guides before, you know, the commands you're running in your terminal just stop working because, you know, all that technology is years and years old at that point because the article was written five years ago. Yeah. So the, it's, a, it's a difficult, difficult world, I think, for, for somebody to, uh, who's, who's, you know, in other words, or, or otherwise really enjoying their Rails experience to go from all this great, I, for, I don't want to say hand-holding, but all this great guidance that the framework gives you to basically no guidance at all when it comes to actually making the thing live. And, and I would say that like making your app live is like one of the most important steps that, that we have that, that you as an app developer need and want, you know? Um, so yeah, that's kind of the intro to it. 
Um, does, that, does that make sense? It does make sense. And have you thought about why this might be the case? A little bit. Yeah. I, I mean, I would think that one of the biggest reasons is just because there's such a big world out there for, and because we're going to stray into the world of, of DevOps here or, or infra tooling, right? So, I mean, we have so many cloud providers, you know, Google, Amazon, uh, with with AWS and Microsoft with Azure, and so many different ways of deploying things, um, you know, paid for solutions mostly. That I think that, that the Rails probably just is thinking, well, we can't possibly know what all of these this whole landscape is or is going to be in the future. So we're just going to sort of leave this as an exercise to the programmer. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think? Well. My hypothesis, which I've never articulated out loud before, so we'll see if it actually makes sense when I say it, but my hypothesis is that unlike almost everything else, active record, active storage, um, any library that you use with Rails, when you get into deployment, then you start having to make contact with resources that cost money and you have to start using products like you're going to have to host on aws or heroku or google cloud or or whatever it may be and so it's not apples to apples with all of these libraries and internal features that rails provides that's my hypothesis i don't know if that's right or not I think that's actually really correct. I mean, I, and I had forgotten that that part of it. I think because whenever you deploy an app to production, you know, you're going to be running on somebody else's hardware. You're probably not going to be running your app on your laptop and then connecting that to the internet. You know, it'd probably be a bad idea. So, you know, anytime that that you need to host something or you need to put something on the internet, you have to pay some hosting costs. Maybe register a domain name. You know, so there's going to be costs associated with that. Um, I think you're totally right, though. Like that's that's definitely one of the sort of, I think, like barriers to to putting something on the internet in general. But I think it's also like a pretty universal barrier that like everybody has to deal with. And if you're a Rails dev that that does want to put your thing online, um, you know, you, you do have some free options. You have Heroku, um, and you have um, well, I guess Heroku is the biggest one now that I think about it. There might be some other free ones out there. I know there are some free databases, for example, out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, like mo- most of this, mo- I think most people understand that that getting something online is going to cost you at least a little bit of money. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess there's like three separate parts. There's like the raw resources, like the VMs that the hosting provider provides, and then mm-hmm. there's like your methodology slash configuration. Like, do you want to deploy using? Kubernetes or Ansible or Capistrano or some other thing. Um, And then I had a third thing, but I I don't remember. But there's like multiple components to it that I guess it might make sense to think about those separately because the, the raw resource is a little bit independent of the methodology. Like you could deploy using Kubernetes to Google Cloud or to AWS it doesn't really matter what the and, oh I think that was my third thing the actual provider, um, but you right. could deploy anywhere using that same methodology. You might have to like change it somewhat to to fit the particular provider, but the the idea is going to be the same. Um, and I don't know exactly what that gets us to think to th- think about it that way, but it seems maybe a little bit useful to 
to divide those things up. Otherwise, it's just this big nebulous thing with all these details inside of it. It's kind of hard to think about. That's also, yeah, that's so true. And like one of the things that like I'm trying to do with this project and Kubi is to like encapsulate a lot of those details and, and sort of abstract them away so that you as the Rails dev, you can, you know, yeah, you'll have to go sign up for like a digital ocean account or an Azure account or something. And you'll, you'll have to, you know, spin up um, a node or something, but usually in most of these interfaces, that's pretty easy to do. Um, it's all of the actual deployment configuration and best practices that, that a new Rails dev probably isn't going to be privy to, or, or if they are, you know, it's just lots of decision fatigue um, to go through all of the, the, the steps to get that to happen. So, yeah, but I think you're totally right. Like there's, there's those three pretty, pretty big hurdles um, you know, choosing a provider, choosing the way you deploy. Um, and then what was the third one you mentioned? Uh, provider, the methodology, and then just the, the resources that it's running on. And the, yeah, and the resources, for sure. Yeah. No, and that's totally correct. I mean, that's, there's, there's going to be some complexity sort of no matter how you, you slice it, I think. But there's, I think there are ways to limit that complexity. I mean, you think about how Rails, you know, abstracts away communicating with the database with active record or communicating with a storage engine with active storage, you know, like, you know, that under the hood, something, you know, something's happening or something, some file is getting pushed up to active uh, to S3 via active storage, for example, or like, you know, some queries being executed on your behalf on your Postgres server. Um, and then the results are returned to you. But there's a there's a layer of abstraction over the top that, that, that abstracts a lot of that complexity so that you can focus on you know potentially the things that you know nobody else in your position is going to have to deal with, and that could be business logic in your app, or it could be your your special deployment that has your credit card, you know, your special cloud account that has your credit card attached to it. So um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's totally legit, and I think at, at this point it might be a good idea to sort of sort of describe why I think this problem can be abstracted away, because. You know, all of these things we've mentioned are, are pretty specific. You know, for example, choosing a cloud provider is pretty specific to what you can afford potentially, or you know, the experience that you have, prior experience. And there's a lot of factors there. Um, but wouldn't it be nice if you could say, "I, I have, I'm a, you know, this is just a hobby project, and you know, Heroku is great, but I already have, <laughs> I've either maxed out the number of free Heroku." you know, apps that I can have, which happened to me, or um, this is a little bit bigger than, you know, Heroku can handle. I need more database rows than I'm allowed, you know, in Heroku's free plan. And so I, you know, I'm going to try to upgrade to Heroku's next biggest plan. Oh, but that's going to cost me like, you know, 45 bucks a month or however much it is. And you might be thinking to yourself, boy, 45 is too much for this project. I don't think I want to spend that much on it. Right. So then the question is, well, what are your options? You know, um, but but wouldn't it be nice if you could say, boy, forty five is too much. I think I'd only like to pay, you know, twenty dollars a month. What can I do for twenty dollars a month? And you know, the answer might be, well, nothing. If not, if it's not, you know, you could use Elastic Beanstalk. You could use any other system. Um, but then you know, there's some vendor lock in there, probably, right? So you get into this world where making these decisions, I think, becomes it becomes too too complicated and there's there's just there's maybe not enough guidance too again from the framework to help you make those decisions um and so you know what what i've been sort of thinking about a lot lately is you know what makes all these cloud providers look is is there something that makes 
all cloud providers sort of look the same, just the way that Active Record makes all databases look the same? Is there an interface over the top of these cloud providers that we can leverage? And I think the answer to that is Kubernetes and, and Docker images. Um, so, so that's kind of where, that's why I say, you know, can, we, can you possibly step back and say, okay, well, I'd like to pay less. Can I do that? Oh, look, there's a cloud provider over here that will give this all to me for less. You know, I can get all the same things that I've got, you know, or I can get exactly what I need, you know, on this platform, but it costs me half the money. And yeah. um, if, if your app can target, it can run in Kubernetes, then there's a pretty good chance of you being able to switch over to that lower cost provider. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so is this a good point to transition into talking about what exactly Kubi does and where it fits into the picture? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so yeah, um, so thinking of Kubernetes as like this interface over the top of cloud providers is I think sort of a useful, it's a, it's a very useful sort of substrate, I would say, Kubernetes is, that is. And it, it, it can fit over the top of all these cloud providers because all these cloud providers have some sort of Kubernetes offering. So, you know, the classic would be um, Google's cloud, um, or I think they call it GKE, Google's Kubernetes um, offering. Engine. And that's sort of the original one. Yeah, engine, thank you, yeah. That's the original offering. Um, but, you know, Azure has their AKS, and their Azure Kubernetes service. DigitalOcean has their DigitalOcean Kubernetes service. Linode has uh, LKE now. So in, in many cases, they'll actually host they'll actually spin up the, the Kubernetes like guts and internals for you and they won't charge you for them. It's called the control plane. So they'll spin up a control plane for you and not even charge you for it. The only thing they charge you for is the actual machines that you're using. So the way that Kubi fits into this is it integrates really tightly with your Rails app um, and provides basically what Stefan was talking about in that Ruby Rogues episode um, we, I call it Kubi, but it, you know, his concept was, was active deployment. So you have active record, active model. This is like active deployment. So it integrates specifically with Rails. And um, with very little configuration, your Rails app is, can become Dockerized. So it, it provides um, a way to just run a simple rake task or, or Rails task to build your application into a Docker image. Um, oh. And then to deploy that image yeah, and to deploy that image onto any of these cloud providers with like a minimal amount of configuration. That's pretty attractive to me because I was actually working on trying to Dockerize a Rails application earlier today. And if you Google how to Dockerize a Rails application, um, it's it's like comical. I'm gonna actually search right now how to Dockerize a Rails application. The first result that, that came up for me was on the Docker website, docs.docker.com slash compose.rails. And no preamble, it just jumps straight into like showing you this big chunk of code with like no explanation. And it's like, okay, well, that's a little fast. And I tried to go through it and it like didn't work. And I went through a couple of, I, I clicked like the top four links and like none of them worked none of them really like got me there the one that was the best was the was the semaphore tutorial they usually have pretty good stuff on their site 
Um, and that was like the closest to what I actually wanted, but unfortunately it didn't actually work. And so after I had messed around with that for like what felt like a pretty long time, I still had nothing. So if there's something where you can just like run a rake task and it will dockerize my application, then that is a huge win. Yeah, dude, no, for sure. And and like I, this whole, you know, problem with tutorials is like what I mentioned sort of at the top of the show, like, you know, for Kubernetes also, but, but also for Docker, you know, the tutorials for doing that for Rails app are pretty incomplete. And you, you just discovered that like, you know, just today. So like imagine, you know, people that have also been trying to do this at their companies probably are running into the same problems. Um, yeah, but no, that this is, that's the whole idea. It's supposed to make it as easy as possible to, to you, to leverage these really, what I would think really cool and, and in some ways cutting edges tech or cutting edge technologies like Docker and Kubernetes, but to like leverage them for, for the average person who like doesn't have their black belt in DevOps, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so we've got the, the dockerization pro- part of, of Kubi. Um, and then it'll also deploy to, you know, these, any Kubernetes cluster. And when I say any, I mean, a cluster that there's a provider for. So and we'll, I'll talk more about providers um, later on, I think, because that's, that's a little bit more, you know, in the weeds. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, and one of the nice things too about using Kubernetes is that if I wanted to say, boy, you know, like I mentioned before, I'm paying way too much using Linode, but look, DigitalOcean has half off, you know, if I sign, and I'm not saying that they do this, this is just an example, you know, or GKE has, they, they're offering me, you know, a month less or 30 bucks a month less or whatever it happens to be and you want to switch over to that new platform you know most of the time switching over to a new platform is, is really hard to do because you got to figure out you know where your secrets go and how to provision the node that you've spun up you know your ec2 instance or, or whatever it is you have to um you know install things on this machine that install ruby and all the gems but you know, and you might have might some have some Ansible or, or Terraform scripts for that, or you might have um, Bash scripts or Chef or something. But you know, the beauty of of Docker and Kubernetes is you don't have to have any of that stuff. In Kubi, it's just a single uh, line of configuration change. So you would you would put a, a different gem in your gem file. So let's say you, you'd have the Kubi DigitalOcean uh, gem in your gem file, and you would just swap that out for Kubi Azure or Kubi whatever else. You know, you've got your new whatever new platform is offering you a deal, you know? Um, and then in your configuration, you just say provider Azure. And provide. And you might need to provide a couple of other configuration options for communicating with that Azure uh, Kubernetes cluster. But then all the rake tasks are the same. So once the cluster has been provisioned and you've, you've figured out how to do that in the Azure um, dashboard, everything's ready to go, you would simply go to your terminal again and just run rake kubi deploy and it should deploy your app um, to that cluster just the same way it did on DigitalOcean without any more configuration change than that. Okay. And I see on your GitHub page for Kubi, you have some code examples that make it pretty clear how that look. Like your example that I'm looking at right now says provider DigitalOcean, and then it's a block inside of which you provide some configuration. So... I say that in case, dear listener, any of this stuff is unclear, you can apparently go to the to the Kubi GitHub page and see some code samples here. Yes, absolutely. And I will say, um, this, this bears saying right now that I've been using Kubi on my dad's um, 
I so a little bit of history. I worked on um, a website for my dad's construction company. Uh, he's a general contractor, um, and I worked on a website for him in like 2008. And it was a PHP app, and it worked fine for the time. But I thought a couple of years ago, like I want to turn this into a Rails app, and so I did. And then I was I deployed it to Amazon's LightSail, which is like a you can spin up. It's just like a, a much more cost-effective version of of, um, of AWS EC2. And you know, I had to. I didn't have any deploy scripts or or Chef or anything set up for that. So it was just literally a Docker run command on that system, and I wrote a bunch of shell scripts. And so when I was working on Kubi, I thought what it would be a pretty good sort of trial by fire, or like a pretty good um, trials, you know, case or or um, what is the word? A use case to to try and you know deploy my yeah, my dad's website. Test. Road, there we go. Yeah, good road test. And so, you know, I, use, I put all the gems in the gem file and I deployed it and it worked really well. It's on DigitalOcean now. Um, and so, you know, that I, I know that it sort of for that kind of like very basic Rails app, it works. Um, and I'm using it, you know, quote unquote in production. <laughs> mm-hmm. But at the same time, this is a very early project. And so there are going to be things that don't work, right? There are going to be things that I need help with. And so that's one of the things I'm, that I wanted to come on the show and say. I was like, this is still a very young project. And I could definitely use the listeners' help in in you know finding these edge cases that don't work and and like you know contributing plugins and anything else to this. Uh, and the next thing that bears for saying, uh, there's just you know I've I've tried to write some initial documentation, which is what Jason's referring to on on GitHub here. But you know there there needs to be a lot more than this also. Um, and so I, I will I'm pledging right now to. Uh, to keep working on that. But yeah, I'm just one guy, you know, so yeah. We'll get yeah. If somebody out there is looking for some open source work to get involved with, um, I, I guess Cameron is inviting you to consider helping on this project. How could people get a hold of you if, if they, uh, if they're interested? Yeah, for sure. Um, the best ways to probably like, you know, you can f- communicate on the GitHub repos themselves. You can file issues and pull requests and stuff, but I'm also on Twitter. So it's just my same, you know, Cameratron GitHub name. Um, I'm pretty much Cameratron everywhere on the internet. So okay, and for... I'll, I'll link that stuff. I wasn't trying to wind down the show right now. That's the same question that I ask at the <laughs> end of every episode, but I just wanted to get that in there before I forgot. Um, yeah, yeah, Since sure. we were mentioning, mentioning that stuff. Um, okay, mm-hmm. so here's a question that I have for you because I actually went down the path six months ago or so or nine months ago of trying to build some kind of some kind of heroku like thing myself the idea was what if it was as easy to deploy to aws as it is to deploy to heroku if Mm -hmm. for whatever reason you can't or don't want to use heroku and i knew much less back then than i did now i didn't even really understand what kubernetes was all about otherwise i would have done something more like what you've done. Um, I ended up canning that project just because it turned out to be way too much work for one person in my judgment for that particular thing. But since then, and in the course of doing that, I've discovered some other tools that are either apples to apples or kind of apples to apples. So there's Cloud66. And as far as I can tell, Cloud66 is like almost exactly my idea with cloud 66 you can go in and say here's my github repo here's my aws creds launch it for me now i I went Mm -hmm. through and 
and tried to do it and it didn't actually work for me. So, so there's that, but that's, that's the idea in concept. It's the same. Um, Mm -hmm. and then there's this other tool that I've mentioned on the, on the show a couple of times. And I had one of the guys from there on the show, this tool called Convox, which is Mm -hmm. somewhat similar to yours in the sense that it at least has a free and open source component to it. And it does use Kubernetes under the hood. And then there's of course, Chris Oliver's Hatchbox. I haven't messed with that one at all yet, but that's kind of like, maybe you could consider it a Heroku competitor, but it uses your cloud provider under the hood. So how would you compare this tool to to those other tools that are kind of similar? Yeah, that's a great question. I've been thinking a lot about that, and I hadn't actually heard of Convox or Hatchbox until I listened uh, to Rails with Chasen, actually. Mm-hmm. So, um, hey, my show's useful for at least one person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is. I, and I, I actually, so because of that, though, I haven't really used those tools. Um, I haven't used Beanstalk, unfortunately, either. But yeah. No, that's um, actually fortunate that you haven't used Elastic Beanstalk. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's like an absolute piece of shit and like i didn't know any better i actually built a production application on elastic beanstalk when i when i didn't know any better but i've since learned that elastic beanstalk is kind of like supposedly a competitor to heroku but it's like um well it just really boxes you in and so it's it's just really awkward to use and everybody i've talked to who uses it since then says like don't use Elastic Beanstalk. It's not like a real tool that that anybody who knows what they're doing actually uses. No offense, okay. dear listener, if you're using Elastic Beanstalk, but it's <laughs> awful. And I ended up transitioning away from Elastic Beanstalk to just EC2 and, and Ansible. So I've kind of crossed that one off my list as, as a viable option. Okay. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. I, I know that David Kimura, like on Ruby Rogues, has mentioned it, you know, like enthusiastically a number of times, but it's always good to get the like the other perspective too. And especially as having never used it, I, I don't even know. Yeah. But, yeah, um, I, I didn't have a great experience with it. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good to hear. I mean, so there's a couple of big, I think, differentiators that Kubi brings to the table. The the first one is that you're because you're using Kubernetes, there's really no vendor lock-in. And I say that you know, knowing fully that there's there's a lot of other sort of things around the vendor experience that you know Kubi can't possibly handle. So a good example of that would be like you know DNS. So you know if you have a domain name and you want to point that at your Kubi deployed you know Rails app, that configuration has to be done, for example, in DigitalOcean's. Um, Dashboard, so you know you and you have to go to your domain registrar and, and mess with uh, your name servers, and then in your DigitalOcean dashboard, you have to go in and configure an A record to point at your load balancer, right? So, and that's not something that that Kubi can really do because that's all managed via DigitalOcean. And I guess I should say it could do that if it if it spoke, you know, the DigitalOcean API, and they do have a pretty good API. Um, but I but I think that that's also might be sort of outside the the, the purview of what Kubi is supposed to do. But at the same time, you know, so I, I do know that that's a thing, and there's there's sort of things around the periphery there that Kubi would not be able to handle, or at least not yet. Um, but you know, there's much less vendor lock-in, I think, than a lot of these other platforms. And one of the big reasons for that is because Kubi is just a library; it's not a service. You don't pay for it specifically. You don't go to kubi.com uh, 
you know, you don't sign up for a Kubi account. You just install a gem on your machine in your Rails app, in your gem file, and run some rake tasks. So in that way, it's a lot like Capistrano. And I think that a lot of Rails devs are at least people who are, you know, I, when I was first coming up in the Rails world, that's how everything was deployed was, was via Capistrano. So I think people are really familiar with that sort of command line and just you know, using a library approach to deploying. So that's sort of point number one. Um, and then point number two is that unlike a lot of tools, Kubi is just for Rails. So it's, it's tightly integrated with Rails. It expects you to be deploying a Rails app. It expects you to put your secrets in credentials.yaml, you know, the, the Rails 5.1 feature for, for, for secrets. Um, you know, it expects you to be using a database and have to have a database.yaml. So those are things that I, for some of these deploying systems, I know you sort of have to tell it, like, this is a Rails app. For Kubi, you don't even tell it that. You just install the gems, and then it's supposed to just work. So, you know, those, I think those are the two big differentiating factors. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Just, like, brainstorming a little bit, something that comes to mind for me is, like, if there existed a tool which all it did was dockerize your rails application and didn't do anything mm -hmm. else i think that tool would have a huge amount of merit on its own because i mm. think like i don't remember if this was how it actually went but well let's say for example there's a tool that expects your application to already be dockerized and i think there's tools like that like if you go and use some kind of Kubernetes project uh, product on AWS, I think it's going to expect that you already have a containerized application. And so you're right, kind of true. left on your own for, for that part. Um, so that's great that Kubi has a part that will, it, it has a component that will dockerize your application for you because just that component alone, I think is a big stumbling block for a lot of people. Mm. That's really good to know. You, you know, I, I sort of always thought about that part of it or have historically thought about the, the Docker part as the less interesting part, but maybe that's wrong. Maybe maybe that's the more interesting part of the whole thing. Yeah, it almost seems like if you took like a building block approach to this library, like the Docker, the mm. Docker part could be its own building block and then that could be coupled with other parts of it, but it, it didn't need to be all part of the same big, huge thing. Right, okay. No, that's super good feedback. I can, I mean, at the moment, I think it would work. So for the listener who can't, you know, see my or, or your screen, um, Jason, I'm looking at the documentation that you had referenced earlier. And, you know, the, it's just a, a sort of a DSL. Um, and there's two sort of top level uh, blocks in this DSL. Uh, one is Docker and one is Kubernetes. Um, so you just say Docker do, and then you fill in your, your Docker details. Um, if you just omitted the Kubernetes do block, I think that that would actually still work. You obviously wouldn't be able to deploy, but um, the Kubi build and Kubi push rake tasks, I think will still work. So you could sort of get that, that Docker experience without having all the Kubernetes stuff as well. Mm -hmm. However, it'd be kind of cool if you didn't have to bring along all that extra baggage to all the Kubernetes baggage and you could just install you know, a single gem that would just do the Docker stuff. So yeah, I'll, I'll definitely consider that. That's a good idea. Yeah. And to switch a little bit, um, can we talk for a second about like the relationship of Docker and Kubernetes and, and how that all works? My understanding, and tell me to what extent this is right, is that the benefit or one of the main benefits of Kubernetes is that it's, it's, it's platform agnostic, 
So like you can run Kubernetes on, for example, Google Cloud and AWS and anything else. So you could you could theoretically switch from one provider to another with minimal infrastructure change. So that's a benefit of it. What kind of a prerequisite of having that benefit is you need to dockerize your application or containerize your application so that the particulars of your application are encapsulated and you can just kind of insert that containerized application into Kubernetes and Kubernetes knows how to handle a containerized application. Am I kind of getting that right? Yeah, you nailed it. That's exactly right. So like Kubernetes and Docker are like inextricably linked. Like Kubernetes is a container orchestration framework. So its whole purpose for being is is to to run Docker images and and then make them available. Like one of the biggest I think features of, of Kubernetes is not even like the Docker, it's all the networking stuff that it puts over the top of it. That's where Kubernetes really shines. So um, that's really one of its main tasks. Is like once you have this Docker image, you know, like how how do you handle you know traffic coming from the outside world? How does that outside world traffic get routed to your particular image? It's or your container that's running. Um, so a lot of the features that it like a lot of the surface area of Kubernetes is all that networking stuff. Okay. Um, but uh, but yeah, and one thing I actually also had mentioned in the last talk that I gave about about Kubi was that um, I think that like. You know, one of the reasons that Docker is kind of a difficult thing to grok, I think, for a lot of people, is because, you know, we think about our applications as, as code, but there's also all these dependencies, and in some cases, like compiler tool chains that you have to have. For example, if I want to install, you know, Nokogiri on my laptop, I have to have um, libxml2 installed and libxslt and and all of these like packages that are written in C that I have to install like via Homebrew or something, you know. So there's it's more than just your app. There's a, a or more than just your source code. There's a bunch of operating system packages and gems and you know and and, and maybe node modules and, and all kinds of things that like make up your app. Um, and that's one of the big reasons that like you know creating uh, or you're using an EC2 instance and um, you know provisioning that with Bash scripts. Is, is kind of painful because, you know, your bash scripts have to, or you have to have installed on that EC2 instance Ruby and your gems and your NPM packages and assets and, and all that stuff before your app can even start or even boot. Um, and Docker, you know, and I know that, that this has been talked about on the show numerous times, but Docker like packages up all of those things and turns them into a single artifact that you yeah. can distribute and by the way, anywhere that you can, want. We can never cover that stuff too many times because like, even me, who's been like on each episode asking the questions and hearing the answers, I still like just barely get it. So if I just barely get it, maybe I'm particularly slow, but also like the listener who maybe haven't even hasn't even heard all these episodes, uh, hearing this stuff multiple times is certainly not a bad thing. But yeah, I, I completely get your point there because like, with my application, I have some Ansible playbooks which tell my EC2 instances what they need to have installed. So that's one place where I'm doing that. And then we had a new developer start recently. He and I needed to go through this whole process of getting his machine set up. And that was a mm. different process. I suppose mm -hmm. you could conceivably have an Ansible playbook that, that handles both an EC2 instance and a local machine. But... 
I have plans to just dockerize the thing because then you can dockerize it once and then use that containerized application to, to host it. And then you don't have to deal with having a, an EC2 instance with particular things installed because you just give it the, the, the dockerized application. And then when a new developer starts, you just give that developer the dockerized application. You don't have to do something special for each place. At least that's my understanding. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a huge reason to use Docker. It's like, uh, at least for local dev, which I will admit, I've never successfully actually done local dev with Docker because the Mac OS file system always gets in my way in, in some way or another. But that would be the dream, right? Because then you can eliminate a whole content or a whole class of problems. The whole class of it works on my machine problems. Um, you, you know, like a classic example of this I just ran into the other day was I had a, a version of OpenSSL installed on my machine via Homebrew, and that broke my Ruby installation because Ruby was expecting it to be a different version of OpenSSL, and so none of the native extensions that use OpenSSL could compile, and it was just a huge pain, and I realized that was because I installed a, a, a package in, in Homebrew that pulled in a different version of OpenSSL. But in a Docker container, or Docker image, rather, um, you know, running, as, running in a container, none of that would really have ever happened because there's only one version of OpenSSL installed in that container. Um, and you can distribute that whole thing as one individual uh, artifact to anybody's computer. And that includes a production server and your laptop. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, so I can't wait to dive into this and take another crack at dockerizing my application, maybe using Kubi's rake task to, to help me do that. And, and I'll let you know if that ends up working or not. Um, yeah, oh, let me know. I'm, I'm actually, if, I'm happy to, to pair with you on it too if you would like at some point. Yeah, I'm kind of curious great. if it's going to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be awesome. Um, okay, we are getting close to time now. So I know that I, that we already shared some of the places where people can find you online and stuff like that, but it doesn't hurt to repeat those things. So where can, where can people go to find out more about Kubi and, and more about you online? Sure, yeah. So Kubi is, there's a GitHub organization called GetKubi. So it's github.com slash G-E-T-K-U-B-Y. No dashes, no underscores, just GetKubi. Um, the documentation we've been talking about is GetKubi slash Kubi dash core. Uh, it would have just been Kubi, but I realized, and I should have checked this a lot earlier, somebody has already published a gem called Kubi. <laughs> so oh, no. I couldn't actually, I know, so I couldn't actually call it that. Um, I reached out to that guy, He's and he's willing to, to give me the name, because I guess he hasn't published a a new gem um, mm -hmm. in, in a number of years. And so it doesn't really need that namespace anymore. Um, but yeah, that's the project. And then you can get a hold of me on Twitter at, at Camertron. It's just C-A-M-E-R-T-R-O-N. Uh, and yeah, looking for help people to, to try this out and, and you know tell me what's not working and submit hopefully pull requests and all that good stuff. Yeah, this is really cool to see. I feel like we're at a stage in the Ruby on Rails community where people are thinking more about deployment and there's more deployment options. You know, you heard all the, the different things that I mentioned earlier. And so it's, it's cool to see another thing here that we can, um, that we can use to make that whole thing easier. Cause as you know, this whole getting rails applications online thing is a huge source of pain and frustration and anything mm. that can make that easier is, is going to be great. Yeah, actually, do you mind if I mention one last thing about the the project? Yeah, please do. So the um, most of the internals of Kubi are, are like plugin based, and um, that sort of 
I think opens the door for a lot of really interesting possibilities. And one thing that I just recently did was add sidekick support. So you all you have to do is say add plugin sidekick, and then you magically have sidekick workers running in production as well. Oh wow. So yeah, just yeah. So like just another like just an, sort of an example of like so you can sort of imagine, you know, if if we can do that with sidekick, then you could also do that with like, you know, um a caching layer. Um or you could have what's another good example? I wrote this down at one point. You can imagine like all the sort of cool things that you can have this this plugin system do on your behalf when you do a deploy. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds really compelling. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay. Um, well, great. This has been really helpful. I can't wait to go and, and look into this more. Um, and I'll, of course, put all these links in the show notes. Cameron, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Jason. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>